This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. And this is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Our topic for the day is the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 and reflecting back on local policy efforts that are being made in this area. So we're really excited with the topic Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 and the local policy efforts. But first, we'll look at the history of it. So the hashtag, hashtag Black Lives Matter, first began in 2013. And this was following the 2012 fatal shooting of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, where the shooter, George Zimmerman, was acquitted. This gained much traction in the United States throughout this time and in 2014 with the shooting of other uh, African-American folks. Throughout this movement, there have been massive peaceful street protests as well as grassroots organizing and activism to bring to the forefront how Black individuals have been the targets of mass shooting, not just in the United States, but around the world. In 2020, especially, we've seen a number of shootings of Black people in the United States and across the world, uh, especially talking about Ahmad Amori in February, Breonna Taylor in March, and George Floyd in May by cop Derek Chauvin. Previously in Canada, there had been protests in Toronto um, in 2015 due to the shooting of two Black men by the police, but it's really in 2020 that this movement gained a lot of traction And this is a trend that we notice not only in Canada, but around the world where Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter's reputation and their advocacy efforts really started being recognized as from 2018 onwards and especially in 2020. In June 2020, over 10,000 people gathered in Charlottetown in what's known today as Rochford Square, but was historically known as the Bog, where Black Islanders lived. And this was the single largest peaceful protest ever in PEI history. Now, this event isn't singular. Many of these uh, very impressive, you know, large results protests took place not just on PEI, but as well in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and across Canada. And throughout June, July, and August, many different organizations continued this grassroots work following the demonstrations in the spring, such as BIPOC Usher, the Black Cultural Society of PEI. However, today we're gonna be talking about other local efforts with Black Lives Matter Fredericton. What's interesting about Fredericton is that in August of 2020, New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs announced that there will be a provincial election on September 14th, making this the first COVID-19 election in Canada. Black Lives Matter Fredericton is one of the organizations that has maintained the maximum amount of momentum from this past spring and has been working actively to keep up the pressure and make asks from different levels of government. For instance, when this provincial election was called, the Black Lives Matter Fredericton branch made a, a number of provincial calls to action to different parties asking them to include certain points on their platforms and rating them on their promises. They have furthermore made presentations to the Fredericton City Council on defunding the police and are currently doing work with bringing Black history to the school curriculum, specifically content on the history of slavery, segregation, systemic oppression, and contributions of Black Canadians in New Brunswick in Canada. However, that's enough from us. So. Let's introduce our expert for the day. 
We're so excited to present to you folks today our special guest. And so to chat with us is a Black Lives Matter Fredericton organizer, moot court champion, former student leader, media wizard, and fellow fan of Beyonce, and first and foremost, a great friend, Hassoni Raymond. So thank you so much, Hassoni, for meeting with us. Um, you're a treasure of a friend, although we've spent a short amount of time together. Every time I think about our time in student politics together, first of all, I start laughing because I think you have one of the best sense of humor of anyone that I know. But then I'm also extremely, extremely uh, impressed by you and your work, both during student politics and, of course, what we'll be talking about today. So the first question right off the bat, how are you doing? I'm doing well and I'm really excited to, to be here and to be engaging in this conversation with you folks. Uh, I think that your introduction is very kind, maybe too kind, uh, but yeah, I am, I'm excited and it's always good to catch up and chat and I love my Islanders, so. <laughs> Fellow Islanders, all of us. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> It was such a great time at that conference in uh, the beaches. Oh, I still dream about the best beach I've been to uh, in all of Canada. That one that we went to with the fire and uh, oh, I remember his name. Yes, Lake yes that beach. was such a good beach, yes. yeah. Oh, I'm happy to hear we were good hosts. That's yeah. so, that warms my heart. I forgot all about that. No, oh my gosh, best time ever. Good, good, it's good to hear. And, you know, I know uh, we've mostly been keeping up with you through Twitter and CBC these last few months. So that's how we've kind of been learning about what you've been up to. So in September of this month of this year, sorry, you started working as the anti-racism project and policy coordinator with the Fredericton Multicultural Council. Um, you know, this follows a significant amount of advocacy work you've been doing over the summer over, you know, with Black Lives Matter and awareness raising. What have been some of your focus areas since September and your priorities since starting in this role? Yeah, oh, that, yeah, it's been a busy time for sure, uh, but an exciting time because I think it's a time when a lot of people are open to conversations and a lot of people are open to, to change and actually moving past conversations, mm -hmm. but, you know, investing resources into seeing and ensuring that change happens. Uh, my job with the New Brunswick Multicultural Council, um, it's, it's been amazing. I'm, I'm glad that I made the decision to defer a year to, to take this job opportunity. Um, I've mainly been focusing on a lot of work related to, to racism in New Brunswick, as my title suggests, uh, but doing some research on what racism looks like here, uh, mm -hmm. conducting my own, I'll be conducting my own research projects to gain kind of individual experiences on racism because you know there's not a lot of data out there or race-based mm. data in in new brunswick or the maritimes more broadly on the experiences of racism and a lot of people are experiencing it but because it's not being officially captured in in any way you know it can easily easily this be dismissed as just a one-time experience or occurrence it's not mm. you know, it's not something that happens often so my my work is is has a lot of focus on on collecting those stories and personal experiences and then seeing uh what we can recommend and what we can do to address those issues 
Um, I'm doing a lot of work internally with the organization as well, uh, internal audit on racism and seeing, you know, how the organization itself can become more anti-racist and be actively involved in, in advocacy. And the last key component, I guess, is uh, chairing an a anti-racism group with uh, settlement organizations from across the province to get their input on that and developing a anti-racism strategy wow. um, or an anti-racism, sorry, uh, programming. So training mm -hmm. for, for the sector. So then we'll, as the multicultural uh, council, we'll train different, different settlement organizations across the province on how to deliver this training in their communities, rural areas, urban areas. So those are kind of the main projects I've been working on in my new role. And we can go into like the high, the <laughs> kind of key advocacy priorities for Black Lives Matter Fredericton as well. Mm. Absolutely. I'm just listening to you, Hassoni. I'm in awe of the work that you've done. You know, you said you just got hired in August. It's only November. The work that you've been doing, and I know the meaning of it in the community. I was reading some CBC articles before we chatted today about your folks work, uh, both with the municipality and as well, uh, Black Lives Matter Fredericton, and some of the shared stories and lived experiences mm -hmm. of folks with racism. And it's not being talked about. And for a lot of people, it's come to light for the first time that, mm -hmm. you know, they themselves are experiencing racism, like you said, mm -hmm. feeling as though, you know, it's one off comments or, oh, they didn't mean that, like that sort of thing or realizing, you know, that's rooted in microaggressions, that's mm -hmm. rooted in racism in, and how your work really is going to be addressing that among many other things. Um, I'm, I'm in awe, I can feel my cheeks <laughs> getting red. Yeah. I'm so excited by your work, that's incredible. Yeah, and um, that's, that's, I'm actually kind of surprised that the, the large attention to specifically anti-Black racism that we've seen over the past few months, because I completed my degree here and I've never seen, you know, this much attention being given to anti-Black racism. It's often seen as a problem of the United States and mm -hmm. that doesn't really happen here. Um, even on our university campuses, when I started university, there was nothing to acknowledge Black History Month or acknowledge, you know, the, is the issues that Black students were facing on, on the campus and I took it up on, on myself to plan and organize these, these uh, Black History Month events for the university. Uh, but yeah, no one was talking about anti-Black racism until this point. So this is a, a, a crucial point in, in history where we're recognizing that anti-Black racism is not something that happens in the United States only mm -hmm. or Toronto, but here in the Maritimes, here in New Brunswick, we also have a history of anti-Black racism with slavery and segregation uh, and systemic racism. Mm. beyond what we're we're taught in school or beyond what the the public knows and we can go into uh into that as well about the erasure of black history mm. that we've seen um in canada but in the maritimes more specifically uh there is not a lot of mention of the black loyalists that that came here and have been here as long as as white folks have been here there's not a lot of mention of the slavery that existed here um in the maritimes in new brunswick there's not a lot of mention of the segregation that existed here. You know, Viola Desmond, who wasn't allowed to, to 
sit in the same part of the movie theater as her white counterparts. And, and you know, that's not that long ago. That's less than 70 years ago that, that Viola Desmond was discriminated against from sitting, uh, there were segregated theaters here uh, in, in, or there in Nova Scotia. So yeah, there's a lot of things that people don't know about the history of anti-Black racism, and that's deliberate. That's a deliberate erasure so that we can maintain this, this facade that Canada is multicultural because we don't hear about all the, these historic atrocities against racialized people, but we hear about, it's taught in, in schools about you know, Canada and the Underground Railroad and how Canada was a safe haven for slaves, but we don't talk about the atrocities. So that tells me that it's deliberate to, to maintain you know, this identity as, you know, a beacon of human rights across the world. But it's, it's, it's much deeper than that. It's, it's deliberate covering up of, of our history. Absolutely, you're right. Because when we look at the image that Canada holds worldwide, and for a lot of immigrants, I think for a lot of us before we came to Canada, I don't know if you can relate to this as well, is you expect it to be this melting pot where all cultures are respected, everyone's living together in harmony or whatever. <laughs> um, and then when you come and you start looking at the systemic issues that are there, the little microaggressions, the fact that, you know, if you go to a meeting and someone says international students, people turn and look at you or, you know, the different stereotypes and attitudes mm. that people have. Definitely, there's been a lot of erasure. Um, talking about your work with Black history and, you know, raising awareness about Black history, you are working on integrating Black history along with the University of New Brunswick into the curriculum as of February next year. And in the meantime, are developing resources for teachers as well. So what have been the major opportunities and challenges for this project? And, you know, what do you hope to gain mm -hmm. out of it? Yeah, and I just like to to point out that you're right. You're completely right, uh, Sweta. When I was coming here, you know, Canada does a really good job as perpetuating this narrative, not only to its citizens and and as a as a state, but internationally. You know, you didn't learn about any of these uh, things, but then you come here, and then you know, once you start doing your own research, you realize, you know, the legacy of slavery, residential schools, and the, the, the atrocities uh, that the state of Canada has committed against racialized people that has often been ignored and, and covered up and erased. And we can't move forward without acknowledging uh, where we're coming from. You know, a history that is not acknowledged is a history that's bound to be repeated. So yep. that must be, that's a story that must be told. Um, and that's why it's important for us as Black Lives Matter Fredericton in our advocacy to get Black history incorporated within the public school curriculum. Mm -hmm. Because it's important for, for people to understand the legacy um, that slavery and colonialism has on Black folks uh, here. Um, it's important for them to recognize it's not that long ago that it happened. Um, and in order to understand the complex issues that racialized communities face today, we have to put it in a view it from an historical lens to see, you know, what were barriers to success? How were racialized people historically and, and present day marginalized from, you know, full access to opportunity and advancement within, within society? So, and also the contributions of racialized people to what we now know as Canada. You know, like a lot of times you learn about the development of Canada and it's only focused on white folks. You know, they came here and they, they civilized this, this land and, and made it what it is today uh, without acknowledging that Black folks came here 
with the white loyalists and also, um, you know, contributed their labor. Obviously, they weren't given the same opportunities, but they contributed their labor and their, their time and their efforts to make this place what it is today. Indigenous people contributed to make this place what it is today. So it's not just uh, white people that did all this, this work. Um, and that contributes to a lot of microaggressions where Black folks are asked, you know, where are you from? Even if their families, I have friends that their families have been here for seven generations, yep. mm -hmm. and they're still asked where, where they're from. Because you know, who the ideal Canadian is, is this white person um, and anyone else outside of that is an outsider that we're welcoming here. You know, the, the, the people who have always been here are white people and everyone else, you know, are people or immigrants coming here to, to that we're gracing them with the opportunity to live here. Oh my goodness. It, it's so true, Hasoni. Uh, as you were speaking, I so many things in my head, but one of them that stood <laughs> out was when you talk about the facade of Canada, this idea that Canada is this beautiful, you know, melting pot of culture, of identities, of, of you know, the marriage of all these different mm. cultures and, and, and ideas. And when I had lived abroad in Belgium, and again, a very white, very colonial country, again, it was the idea that Canada was a safe haven for all these different types of uh, identities, races, everything. And I was thinking to myself, you know, as someone who had taken in grade 12 at the time, PEI history, and had learned about the role of indigenous peoples and learned about the bog and learned about Africville and all these crucial pieces for the first time in my, you know, 12 years of education at that point, the role of indigenous and black people, particularly mm. on PEI and in the Maritimes, I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you folks are in a rude awakening or in for a rude awakening about what you know Canada is really about. But to that point, you, when you talk about the facade of Canada, not just internationally, but locally, I recently took a course and it was on the history of medicine in Canada and how one of the policies that was put forward, uh, you know, uh, throughout the mid 1900s was, of course, universal health care. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem at the time was post-secondary institutions were not producing an adequate amount of doctors in order to meet the need of providing universal health care coast to coast to coast to coast. So what it ended up happening was two things. One, in order to provide the services in order to provide that universal coverage, many people from the BIPOC communities were actually those who had started universal health care in Canada, in addition wow. to because of the need to be able to educate doctors and have them in the workforce, um, the same thing. Many people of color were those who were educating uh, and starting different um, medical schools in Canada that mm. jumpstarted throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s. So one of the policies that we value so much in Canada and again, this facade of look at us, universal healthcare was actually built on the backs of people of color. And that's something that wow. we never talk about. And that was something that really moved me when I took this course was, wow, we talk about this as though it's this wonderful thing, but we don't actually talk about that unwritten history as you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, a couple other things come to mind as well. I remember 
I was in Halifax recently and I was at the museum looking at the exhibit for the Halifax explosion, uh, you know, that happened mm -hmm. back in the day. And one of the exhibits was about this black doctor who had done a considerable amount of work. And then part of uh, amount of work, you know, in helping folks and helping heal them. And then part of the exhibit had a bit of the line before he wasn't allowed to practice because of segregation laws. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, isn't that, you know, a significant amount of hypocrisy here where this person's contributing so much, but legally they might not be allowed to practice. But also talking to Emma's point about, you know, how doctors came to be in Canada, and this is a bit of a segue that has nothing to do with what we were supposed to talk about. <laughs> but uh, I think in the last few years, we've seen the rise of the model minority mm. or the minority or how you know BIPOC folks are supposed to behave in order to better integrate into society you know and it's always about you know if you want to be here then you better be above average at everything mm. you do and you know let BIPOC people be average and have their place in community as well right <laughs> yes yes um and you both bring up some some excellent points and the fact also recognizing you know that black folks have been able to accomplish all of this despite the barriers that they've they've faced you know segregation you know queen's university didn't even allow black folks to to attend queen's uh their their medical program mm -hmm. i believe um up until 60 years ago so you know we have mm -hmm. these historical barriers but still uh, black folks are able to, to be resilient and rise above uh, these barriers to, to contribute um, to society in whatever capacity you can. But I think you bring up a, a really good point, Sweta, about you know, the model minority and expecting you know, racialized people to, to, to be above average in order to be deserving of, of respect and basic mm -hmm. human, human dignity. You know, like no matter who the person is, uh, they could, be a you know what we call a criminal or whatever you know they still deserve um respect and you know you can't justify violence against a person to say oh they did this one bad thing you know like we're all humans and why do minorities have to you know try to work themselves you know and try to be the work twice as hard to be seen as 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 equal and also, uh, this this brings me to a thought that I was having the other day as well around, you know, the idea of representation. Um, but I think we 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 some racialized people who are able to, you know, or who want to, you know, not a lot of racial, not everyone wants to be a doctor or a lawyer in the first place, you know, so uh, we can't impose that that standard on them. And then they come here um, and a lot of them feel a certain level of, um, they don't want to talk about racism because if they talk about it, it will be seen as them being ungrateful and, mm -hmm. you know, go back where you're coming from because, you know, if you don't like it here, why did you come here in the first place? And I think that is highly problematic because not because, you know, your, your coming here means that, or it's better than somewhere else. And I think people always compare to United States, which is not a very high bar in the first place. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that people should be hush-hush about racism and the barriers they're facing, because you know, if you speak out, you should just go and you're just trying to start problems and you know all that, that problematic narrative. But just to bring back to my point around representation, is the fact that when we're talking about 
um, Black liberation, mm -hmm. it goes beyond just representation and having quote unquote model minorities in positions of authority. Because if we have one or two or three or even 10 or 100, you know, Black folks represented in institution, that does not mean liberation yeah. for all Black people. You know, if the people who are striving for Black liberation, uh, we want liberation for all Black people, not just a few Black people who are able to be quote unquote successful within a, a capitalistic framework. Um, so representation is important to, to some extent, but a lot of times these people themselves have internalized colonial um, and capitalistic values and themselves, they're afraid to talk about racism and, and have the tough conversations because their positions of power will be put in, in jeopardy. So when we're talking about black liberation, it must be grassroots, it must be consultation with the racialized people must be done with community, not just a, having one person in a boardroom and saying, you've consulted, you know, because that's not meaningful uh, consultations. So I, I really segue into that, but I thought that was something. Not to mention sometimes having, you know, that one black person in the room, sometimes just more harm than good because mm -hmm. if they don't have a problem with a certain issue, then they're used as an example being mm. like, oh, this person doesn't have an issue. So no black person is ever going to have an issue with this. So yeah, it raises the point of tokenism and also, you know, attrition of the rest of the people. And also the fact that racialized people are expected to be an expert on all things race, you know, like not all racialized, like I had to learn, read and learn about like a lot of the, like I, I experienced it, but I didn't have the language or the knowledge to, to articulate it. So the fact that you, they expect every racialized person to be an expert on race and race relations, that's like highly, highly problematic, you know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think you make a lot of, I mean, all these are, are incredible points and I, I love just listening and learning. Like you said, this is a big part about, about learning and unlearning as well mm -hmm. is, is what we've internalized. Uh, and I feel like as myself, as a white person, I've, I've internalized so many microaggressions and just misconceptions and falsifications of things when it comes to race and identity. So I feel like this, the unlearning and learning is so important. Um, and one thing that you had mentioned was when we talk about representation, there can't just be one check, you know, we, we got one person of XYZ insert, you know, historically underrepresented person because uh, exactly to both of your points, you know, that does not address these structural and systemic barriers that historically underrepresented people such as black people experience when it comes to um, accessing leadership positions. But mm. one thing I really want to focus in on here and, and something that really stood out to me when it comes to, as you said, consultation at a grassroots level and reflecting that in representation was the Black Lives Matter Fredericton work throughout the recent general election in New Brunswick. I remember you had folks had put out a, uh, a breakdown of what each of the political parties stances were on your four main policy asks and me and I know Sweta as policy people were like whoa <laughs> like light bulb this is so cool because to be able to have those specific policy asks and then to cross compare each of the different political parties. Um, oh my goodness, it was a field day whenever I had mm. saw that. Um, and I was so, so interested in it. So how do you feel as though those policy asks influenced the 
2020 general election in New Brunswick that you folks recently had? Yeah, I, I, I think there was a lot of attention uh, given to them. And, and that's the thing, it's, it's, it's grassroots people. It's under a democracy, theoretically. It's, you know, the, the values of the people should be represented in whatever the governing party uh, states that they're, they're gonna do. And I'm looking forward to seeing the throne speech um, coming up with what um, priorities will be, will be mentioned in that. Um, but yeah, we wanted to, to make the public aware of what or, or calls to actions are and what, um, what the government's position and the different political parties' positions were on those issues because we want our supporters to be more than just, you know, uh, vocal on social media, but actually put their vote where their mouth is. And if mm -hmm. you know, a political party is not in alignment with Black Lives Matter, and you said Black Lives Matter, then you're not supposed to be voting for, for that political party. So that was the kind of purpose of us uh, putting our, our calls to action um, out there and for people to, to gain an understanding of, of what we're about and what you know, the, the grassroots community uh, sees or what the Black community sees as a, a priority. And if they wanted to support that, um, putting their, their, their ex beside a party that would, would be willing to, to you know, en enact these, these policy changes. And um, I could go into like kind of explaining why um, we chose or how we came to mm -hmm. choosing these, these policy positions, if that's something um, you'd be interested in. Please do. <laughs> um, yeah, so as we mentioned, the one of the major ones was the incorporating Black history into the, the public school curriculum because, again, there's this erasure of the history of Black folks here um, in New Brunswick. It's not taught, like, just going to university, a lot of people don't know about, you know, the history of slavery, segregation, and the contributions of Black folks to, to what we now know as, as New Brunswick. So we thought that was important. Um, and also in understanding the current barriers faced by, by racialized people, we have to, 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 to look back to see how historically they've been marginalized and how that translates to, to current day or modern day oppression and barriers. Um, another policy standpoint is uh, increased investments in social services and that's in um, that kind of goes hand in hand with defunding the police on the municipal level. So on the municipal level, um, the, Fredericton, the Fredericton City Council is responsible for the Fredericton Police Force, but then social services is under the provincial jurisdiction. So we wanted to, you know, be pressuring the provincial government to invest more in social services and the municipal government to this um, you know, divest some of the money that they've been investing in the in the police into community resources to get, uh, you know, on both levels and increase uh, amount of money going to, to community because we know that, you know, reactive forms of community safety don't work. You know, we call police when crimes have already been committed to investigate it and, you know, whatever they do at the, the, the crime scene. So maybe there is a role for a specialized group of people that investigate crime, but why are we as a society calling the police on a homeless person who is seeking shelter in the cold, uh, let's say in a, in a teller machine and trying to drag them and put them out in the cold or lock them up in prison 
when we could invest in or money into affordable housing so no one has to be left vulnerable on the streets during winter? Mm -hmm. You know, why are we investing in police to harass people with mental health issues, you know, handcuff them and take them to, to jail and, you know, whatever, when we could invest in adequate mental health supports for for people. So it's it's this this policy position is about investing in people over police, you know, investing in care over cops, you know, respecting the inherent dignity of our community members. And this won't only, this advocacy priority, while it's coming from Black Lives Matter, it won't only benefit Black Lives Matter, it will in, uh, benefit our entire, our entire community who, you know, will have adequate mental health support, adequate, you know, access to housing, food security, and everyone having their, their basic needs met. And, and research shows that that's the way we prevent crime is when people uh, have their basic needs met um, and we have community programming and community services to help people, you know, reach their goals and go in their in whatever direction they want to go. I don't know if anyone has anything to add because I don't <laughs> want to be going on and on here. But even just just two days ago, I was walking down the street and I saw a homeless person and I normally stop and we normally chit chat a bit. And that day, he kind of looked a little bit more distressed than usual. And he looked at me and he's like, how do I grow? Can you tell me how, how people grow? And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, in what context? Like, physical growth, emotional growth? And he's like, everything. I just want to grow and um, be a better person and stuff. And to, you know, it's sad that I didn't have any resources to, to direct him to because we don't invest enough in, you know, helping people and helping community members. So... That's where that defunding the police uh, point came from. Um, la we had also commissioning research on racism in New Brunswick and the development of an anti-racism strategy. Again, there's not a lot of research on racism in New Brunswick and how it affects us socially, you know, on a personal level and how it affects the economy in general. So we're asking the government to invest more money into uh, research and develop using that data that they collect to develop a strategy to address racism um, in the province. And lastly, we had uh, mandatory anti-oppression training for elected officials. And obviously, we know that um, you know cultural competency and anti-oppression trainings won't be the band-aid solutions to solving systemic issues. But at least it's just stepping point to allow people who are interested to kind of view policies from an intersectional perspective and how, you know, that they're, the decisions that they are making might be seen as neutral um, on the face, but might have disproportionate impacts on other marginalized groups. So those are our main priorities that came from a conversation with, with community after we did a big protest in Fredericton earlier this year. That was a lot. <laughs> yes, sorry, we're just taking a few minutes, I think, to absorb and reflect on everything you've said. And one thing that really stands out among, you know, the hundred things that stood out from this conversation was looking at resources, you know, for people up front instead of being reactive about it. Mm. Like you gave the example of the homeless person looking to grow. It takes a lot less money and resources to provide support to someone up front than it would be to remedy the situation after it costs less money to put someone in a shelter than it does in a jail. So exactly. So even if you're looking at it, you know, because dollar talks, 
So mm-hmm. if you're looking at it on from a purely economical perspective, then definitely these upfront investments are a much, much better value than whatever's coming after. No, for sure. And and the system that we currently have is not is not effective in in preventing crime and supporting communities. Why are we investing in, you know, punishment and you know, harassment of the most marginalized people in, in our community when we could invest in their care and development. Um, and that will make our communities safer. That's what will make our community safer, investing in people uh, over the, the, the police. And we have to recognize that these people still have dignity as human beings, you know, like, uh, I think we, we are kind of at the place in society culture um, I'm in sorry, you, you, you're freezing up a little bit Can sorry you yeah from the point I think we're at the point in society yeah I think we we as a society are are in North America are very individualistic so it's all about under capitalism like myself what wealth I can amass for myself how can I myself be be better um, and that you know poses a barrier to empathizing with people who mm. are not like us. You know, we see some on the, on the streets and we say, you know, they just don't work hard enough. That's why they're there. Um, and we should be at a place where we care about people no matter how hard they work, but also recognizing that the most marginalized people generally work the hardest, you know, but they just have so many barriers that they end up like not being able to meet rent and being stressed and uh, then their mental health, uh, you know, deteriorates and they ended, end up on the street. So, um, yeah, I, I'm just, when I, when I think about it, I'm just like, it's so simple. It's just, you know, respecting the dignity of people and caring about, about people, you know, not locking them up in cages, but supporting them and nurturing them um, as human beings, as we, we would want to, to be supported and, and nurtured if we were in a, in a vulnerable position. So I think if, if everyone can, can agree on that, then, then hopefully one day we'll be at a place where, you know, no one is homeless. I don't think in a world where we have so many, re- so much resources, so much wealth, um, especially in Canada, that colonized and stole a lot of wealth from, you know, developing nations, but um, modern day colonialism, I should say. Mm-hmm. But I, I think with, with a nation with so much wealth, why do we have people who, who it's so cold outside, like why, <laughs> <laughs> None of the policy and decision makers can empathize to say, you know, why are we allowing human beings to, to, to be freezing outside in the winter? Or why are we allowing someone to go hungry when we have so much food wasting? I think it's just basic uh, logic and human, human decency to, to, to move in this policy um, direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Hassoni. And, and you mentioned one thing that I think is Everything is so true. One thing I'll start with, of course, is treating people with dignity and respect, full stop. And mm-hmm. and you don't see that reflected in, in all policies. Like, like you said, it's friggin' cold outside. It's Canada, for God's sake. Like, this is not a shock, you know, when November, well, now with climate change, December, maybe, <laughs> uh, you know, when December and January roll around, that it's probably going to go below freezing. That's to be expected. But one example of, of policy decisions, like you said, you know, with ample amount of resources, but simply choosing not to utilize them was 
and I know this is, you know, a similar challenge that I'm sure Fredericton faced as well. Here in Charlottetown, uh, when COVID-19 had first hit in March, of course, it was very cold outside. You know, March, we get many mm-hmm. snowstorms. It's cold as shit. And we had so many empty hotels, motels, short-term rentals, Airbnb, you name it. We had, we are a tourist destination. Therefore, we have many different accommodations that exist, even in the off season. And so, you know, it's minus 20 out. People are being asked to stay home. There's all these resources open for people to stay at, but there still remain to be not enough beds in shelters for folks who did not have a fixed address to stay at. Mm. We had ample, ample resources, but we still did not, you know, even under the Emergencies Measures Act, take advantage of the resources that were there that could have been uh, decided to utilize. But I think like a lot of things, and, and I know we see this in a lot of work, whether it's with students or whether it's with women or whether it's with the Black community, even if you look at dollars and cents, even if you break down, you know, we spend X, Y, Z amount of, you know, into uh, police and, and we could save, you know, $2 million tomorrow with this basic solution. Even though oftentimes the initial response from decision makers is, oh, well, it's going to cost X, Y, Z or to transition that policy, that's going to be time, you know, consuming mm-hmm. or it's going to cost a lot. Oftentimes, even at the root of it, even if you have the dollars and cents figured out, it's apparent that it's not about the money. It's about the, again, microaggressions towards Black people. It's about the um, inherent white safety that comes with police. It's Mm -hmm. about, you know, these, these beliefs towards the existing structures that are that they work therefore let's maintain them and 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 it has nothing to do about money and i find both Mm. in policy and in government relations that is extremely challenging and this is not about me so i'm going to throw it back to you but no no you you no you you raise some some really good points because you know, police have never meant safety to to a lot of communities. A lot of communities, police has just meant uh, harassment and and further marginalization. Even looking at the history of the police, uh, for instance, the RCMP, the history of of that institution, um, you know, historically served as a means to keep indigenous people and police indigenous people to keep them on the reserves when they weren't allowed to leave reserves. So we have these institutions that have a history of uh, racism. And when we talk about serve and protect, it's serve and protect who? You know, who is in the positions of power to give those directives? You know, when we look at the, 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 um, the instances of racism, that happened um, in Nova Scotia over, you know, Indigenous people, the Mi'kmaq, uh, practicing their inherent right to fish. We saw when there were a lot of violence against Mi'kmaq people, the police were complicit and just, you know, watching. But if that was the other way around, you know, you'd have, when when the government wants to, to bulldoze Indigenous lands for development, the RCMP comes in full force and harass and, and, and torture. So, you know, police have never meant safety for a lot of our communities and we can keep each other safe uh, outside of the police. But again, Emma, as you mentioned, you know, the narrative of, of police 
um, of a, we grow up, you watch the movies. It's the police that save the day and, you know, they're the, the heroes. And not saying, you know, that no police has ever done anything, you know, good. But I, and I don't even want to give that disclaimer because whatever, if you, if you take it. <laughs> um, but it's, it's the fact that in reality, um, we're just tied to this, this idea of, of not changing and, um, you know, what we grew up uh, seeing and, and learning. And it's hard to unlearn these things. It's hard to, you know, look from, at a, at a, at a, uh, from a different perspective. Um, because when it comes down to the dollar value, paying a police or investing in an institution to literally come and harass and take out a homeless person out of an ATM, you know, five days a week, that would be that would it would be cheaper, you know, for how many years? It would be cheaper to just house this person, you know, offer them support, and then they'll be able to, you know, grow as that analogy when that the 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 homeless guy was saying to me, um, and then they'd be off the street working and you know contributing to society in other ways. So isn't that a better solution than you know perpetuating violence against the the most marginalized people within our community? But I think it's just easy for us to, to distance ourselves from, from those things. You know, we lack empathy. It's like, well, I'm not homeless, so I don't care. Or, you know, they, they, they got themselves in that position because they're not uh, working as hard. You know, I'm not racialized, so I don't care. Like, that's not my problem. I personally am not racist, so I don't care about what going, goes on there. But I think it's all our responsibilities. It's our collective responsibilities. Because if some, if some people are facing barriers in our society, that matters to me, even if I'm not facing those barriers. Because that's a person with potential that could do something great for, for our society and contribute something that no one else can contribute. Mm -hmm. So uh, when these issues affect all of us, and we should uh, develop this collective responsibilities for, for social ills. If women are facing barriers, um, to, to employment, um, barriers to accessing services, that matters to me uh, because, you know, that person has something to contribute that I myself or no one else can, can, can contribute. So uh, we do ourselves a disservice when, when, when we don't care or, or think about issues as, you know, it doesn't affect me, so I'm not going to participate in it. Mm -hmm. There's just one thing you said that I might disagree with a little bit. Okay. That's, and that's saying, you know, I'm not racist, so I don't need to care. I think not caring is racism. Mm. Passive mm. racism, but Absolutely. as long as you're not trying to unlearn things and, you know, make things more equitable for everyone, that's just another manifestation of racism to me. Yeah, no, you're you're correct. And uh, I'm just quoting, you know, what people think. You know, they're just like, I'm not racist, so but but they might they might even be racist, but not even, you know, recognize the extent to which they're racist because of their internalized racism and being, you know, silence is violence. So if you are not um, you know, actively engaged in anti anti-racist work and trying to, you know, figure out how you can can change the system. You're being complicit and you're a part of the, the problem. Mm -hmm.
I think Sweat is waiting for me to ask. I think I'm next, but I, I derailed the conversation. I'm, I'm so sorry. But to circle back actually to what we were talking about was um, pertaining to police within the municipality of Fredericton and as well the work of Black Lives Matter Fredericton. So um, the organization recently presented at City Council back in October. Um, and of course, we know uh, what policy solutions already exist and are already successful in other jurisdictions that have defunded the police and as well reallocated that funds into social services. You know, that is very apparent that those policies exist. They're successful. Mm -hmm. We can do them. Um, but the question is, and, and unfortunately, the decision lies within the city council itself and, and the decision makers, you know, whether or not they want to recognize that that is a good policy and mm -hmm. that it works. Um, and so unfortunately, the, the decision relies with them. What has been the uptake thus far with Black Lives Matter Fredericton and the efforts to defund the police with the municipality? Yeah, um, I think that's that's kind of complex in a sense for me because, um, you know, you're invited to, to attend these meetings and give these presentations. But, you know, if you don't constantly follow up and keep up the public pressure, a lot of this just like goes under the table and it's it's no longer um, a top priority. And that's why it's important to for folks to continuously be engaged even beyond you know, the, the initial um, momentum that we were seeing with everyone sharing Black Lives Matter stuff, you know, continuing that because it's a public pressure that keeps stuff going. Um, so we had a meeting earlier, then we had to follow up and we did that presentation. We had a new, um, a couple of recommendations to the municipal government, but we decided to zone in on this public hearing on defunding the police and community safety. And honestly, there, everyone at the meeting were, uh, saying, yes, this is a, this sounds good. This is the community that we want to live in. So I'm like, you're the people that are in the way of doing it. So why not pass the motion tonight? But then they're like, oh no, but we got to go and do the study and, you know, and make sure we do our research and whatever. And I'm like, well, this has been a topic of conversation since, you know, June, like why this has been something that has been you know, conversation and the municipal levels across North America. So why haven't you already done the research one? And two, you know, who's going to be doing this research, you know, from a, a straight white man perspective, and then they're going to dig up this um, position that they found and say, uh, oh, yeah, you know, this one other racist white man said this, so let's go, we can't do it anymore. Um, so I think that we need to to continue to be critical about that. And I saw today something around the budget being um, proposed. Um, but the, the, the conversation or the, the public hearing hasn't happened yet. Um, so I, I tweeted about that because I'm disappointed that, you know, these are community resources. Governments, municipalities are funded by uh, community tax dollars. So why aren't we getting a say on where the money is being spent? Mm. Um, why doesn't community have the opportunity to engage in, in these, these budget decisions? So I followed up with the city today and hopefully um, we'll be getting a response and doing some mobilization around that because I don't think the budget should be passed without any community um, conversations or consultations um, or because 
you know, especially in the current context where defunding and uh, where the, the the municipalities are spending their money are, are are things that are in the public eye. So why are they trying to pass these budgets uh, behind closed doors and having the community conversation on defunding the police mm -hmm. after the budget is already passed? Like, what what sense does that make? Um, so so that's where we're we're currently at. There seems to be uh, some counselors that are are, are interested um, in in moving in this direction. But then again, you know, if you don't constantly follow up um, and make sure that your advocacy, uh, you know, all your I's are dots and your T's are crossed, then it it ultimately gets undermined. So. Um, there is some interest, but we're seeing where it goes. We're taking it, you know, we're being skeptical because mm -hmm. a lot of times um, organizations and government officials, and we know this from our time in student leadership where, you know, you meet with a politician <laughs> and they're like, yes, great ideas, uh, good, nice meeting you. But if you don't follow up, if you don't put pressure, that just, they, they forget about it and they just want to meet to smile and take a pic and say, you know, we met with the students and we know what the students think. You know, we met with the, the Black Lives Matter Fredericton and we know what they think, like stop, stop the, the public scrutiny now so we can go back to doing what we were doing before. Um, so I think our, our approach is continuing to, to keep a close eye on what's going on. Um, last week I got, uh, we submitted right to, I submitted right to access information requests earlier this mm -hmm. year that I had to actually appeal it um, with the ombudsman to get basic information on the Fredericton police for some of their policies and procedures. Um, so there's this lack of transparency, lack of accountability. There's no police board. There's no independent, um, you know, oversight for for police here. So we we're at a place in society where these people are getting such a large amount of tax dollars but there is no check and balance with that system. And I think that's, that's my responsibility and that's everyone's responsibility um, in a democracy to, to ask these questions. And um, if you think something is, is, is not going the way it should or something could be better, you know, asserting that and, and making noise, you know, because a lot of times racialized people feel scared to talk about these things or be vocal because you're going to be seen as a shit disturber or the angry black person or the person that, you know, why did you come here? And, you know, we had it fine until you came here to and started stirring the pot, you know, but that's democracy. It's what it's it's all our, our, our duties to 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 have these conversations and assert what we think is right and and would better serve our communities. So that's that I went, I kind of went off topic, but that's, that's where we're at with, with, with our municipal government. And, and it's true though, that sometimes a lot of the support that you're shown seems very performative if action doesn't follow it. Like I remember over the past summer when there were Black Lives Matter marches and, you know, around the world, there were a number of political leaders that were there. And I was like, great, you're the one everyone's protesting against. Like, it's yeah. just that you're taking a knee, but what legislation are you going to bring? Yeah, what has happened? Follow up now. Like, what, what has happened? Like, all of these political people, they attended all the protests and the march. Mm -hmm. You know, they were like, oh, meet with us to, to let us hear your concerns. And you did. And then <laughs> what What now when, when the, the, you know, the, the gratification that you'd get from that is now gone? you know, because it's not as prevalent Black Lives Matter. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's just this performance. And that's why a lot of times I'm not wasting my time mm -hmm. 
you know, meeting with all the politicians that that want to meet because that's a waste of time to just mm -hmm. being there. Um, you know, you have to be selective with your time and and what your your advocacy priority is mm -hmm. are. So if it's someone that's willing to work and can give you some insight on how to move things forward, fine. But meeting with people five times who are just gonna post a, not really post a pit, but just to say that they met with you um, is ineffective. You know, you need that grassroots mobilization as well. You need that public pressure, posting on social media, letting community know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Because a, a lot of times they want to bring you into the closed room. So, you know, and then after you're you're there, it's like, just do let's just do the bare minimum or just just stop you know criticizing us publicly or saying this don't post this in the in the media and whatever and once you do that then they forget about you so you have to be strategic and and balancing um and and you know looking ahead being two steps ahead and 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 critical um in the way you mobilize and never forget community you know it's community that give us legitimacy in this in this work so you know i'm very mindful of that you know as a person you know meeting with people on behalf of of, of community um community has to know what these meetings are about you know community has to ultimately have the the final say not me the tokenized black person that you know is articulate enough to 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 enter these spaces um or you know my mannerisms are are good enough or sat satisfactory enough to to you know, survive in, in a boardroom or people are going to be impressed by how, you know, smart I am as a, for a black person. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not about me only, like I'm not the only voice for community. At the end of the day, everything must go back to community. And that's why in our strategy, we had the, we asked for the, the public hearing on, on defunding the police, because it's not about me or a core group going in and saying, these are the, the the what we want to see um but it's about community having the opportunity to say what what community wants um rather than you know two people being tokenized by the institution to represent an entire group of people yeah and absolutely and you know just to follow on that line of thought there one major obstacle that we see in all grassroots movements not just black lives matter is that you have a huge amount of support for a considerable amount of time and then it's crickets and that's something that's you know it's pretty similar to what's happened you know with anti-racism movements and the black lives matter movement where the summer saw hundreds of thousands of people marching and then suddenly in a lot of areas we can't see progress being made mm. fredericton is one of the jurisdictions where you mm. folks have really kept your foot on the gas really you know kept on putting pressure so you know what do you think contributed to you folks being able to do this work effectively and is there you know any advice you think you'd be able to give to other groups trying to continue on this work yeah um that's a a, a great point you know <laughs> about when the momentum dies who's there after you know when at the beginning everyone had black lives matter stuff sharing on their their social media but when we when we launch an email campaign when it comes on to calling your mp's office when it comes on to comment even commenting on a, a media post to keep the pressure on who's willing to to do that um so yeah that's something that can be very frustrating uh in this work but my advice to to anyone who's doing grassroots mobilization is to recognize that it's uh 
it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? <laughs> um, it's about, you know, being strategic, coming up with your, your own timelines and how to keep the public engaged, making your, your and a lot of this is, are things that I learned from um, during my time in student leadership as well, and then going on and getting a, a more grassroots perspective on it, um, you know, the importance of the media and telling your narrative there and how to keep uh, the media interested in, in, in the public discourse and to make sure that, you know, progress, it's, it, 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 it never stops. Um, but also don't burn yourself out thinking that change is going to happen like at the snap of a finger, you know, you got to be strategic in, in, in what you're doing and depend on community, you know, make sure that you're bringing folks together um, and making sure the work is, is being distributed in, in an equitable way. Everyone feels um, involved and no one's burning out. And if someone's burning out saying, okay, I can take over on this, um, while you rejuvenate and then maybe I'm going to be burnt out and I can delegate to someone else to do something. Um, so it's building those strong relationships within your organization, within your community, um, and being strategic uh, in your advocacy and, you know, think, thinking about all the options, thinking long term, um, you know, what you want to accomplish and how, how you're going to get there um, and not just you know, doing a protest today, but then not having, you know, what, what's the follow-up, you know, and how do I, you know, get this beyond just a protest to, but actual, you know, dismantling systems of oppression, you know, changing of, of policies and procedures, you know, having representation, having grassroots consultations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the last thing, I, I know I mentioned this before, but it's about you know, community, you know, who won't, you know, who will the mo the people who are most likely going to be burnt out or no longer interested are the people who it doesn't affect directly. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't get tired of, of, of advocating against racism because it's something that I face on a, on a daily basis. But if you get your community members involved in your, in your fight, they, they are more likely not going to be um, burnt out and they will, will give you the motivation you need um, and connecting that also with a with a passion, you know, knowing why you're in this work. It's not because it was a there was a big momentum or um, the attention that that it got before, but it's knowing that the importance that your work will have. Um, it's knowing that if this goes through, you know, this winter people will not be homeless. You know, if it, this goes through, or most vulnerable people will have the support they need. If this goes through, Fredericton will be a safe space for people without status. If this mm -hmm. goes through, you know, racialized people will no longer be harassed by by um, the police. So it's knowing why you're you're doing this work and constantly connecting yourself back to that and reflecting on that, um, and that's what will drive you because you will know that it will have a, a impact on on community. Mm -hmm. And building community partnerships with other grassroots organizations. Like it's not just me. It's the it's the work of Solidarity Fredericton, Grassroots MB. Um, no one is illegal. Fredericton. People who have been in this space long before me. And you know, building those connections and being humble enough to say, you know, I don't know what what's your experience. What have you done before? How did that work? Um, why did you think it didn't work out the way you 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 thought? Um, and yeah, connecting with your elders and, and your community members and um, 
you know, using, utilizing those, those community resources. And that's the main thing with Black Lives Matter Fredericton. It's building those community partnerships um, and solidarity with our indigenous brothers and sisters. We did um, a unity ceremony. Um, we helped support the solidarity rally um, for the, the Mi'kmaq people in Nova Scotia. So um, it's about supporting other grassroots groups and, and then they will support you. Um, in return. So it's a lot of stuff, you know, I, 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 those are just off the top of my head. But I think the most important thing is knowing why you're, you're in, the, in, in the work and why you're doing it. Um, and once you're grounded to know, even if you feel burned out, you can look back and say, you know, this is for this purpose and I'm passionate about that and I want to see that happen. So I'm going to continue. And also knowing when to take a break. Sometimes, like I still have so much of those policies that I got last week that I haven't even touched on. Um, and I'm not, get, I'm, you know, like obviously this, you don't get paid. So it's like when you get your competing priorities, knowing when to, you know, step back and say, okay, I'm going to put this on pause for a little bit and focus on me. But I'm, I'm definitely going to go back to those policies and read all how many hundred pages um, that I got. Uh, and seeing, you know, how they can be changed and what barriers they may, might present. So those are just off the top of my head, a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's so incredible, Hosoni. I'm, again, I keep saying this, but I just, it's like sitting through like the best possible movie ever. Like you get so, <laughs> you get so um, lost in it that you just, I'm nodding and I'm like, I just, in tune with everything mm -hmm. that you're saying and mm -hmm. appreciative of it because it, it's yeah it, it mm -hmm. the work that you're doing is incredible and like Sweta said like Fredericton has seen success because of the genuine grassroots efforts of many different uh, nonprofit organizations such as Black Lives Matter Fredericton and, and many others as you have mentioned so I'm really excited to see mm -hmm. you know both on the provincial side of policy that you folks have been working on with the speech from the throne coming up as well as I hope there's follow-up from your connect today with the municipality um, and like Sweta said keep the gas or keep the pedal on the gas yeah. <laughs> um, but again balancing that with the time for yourself so yeah self-care is very very important so that's good yeah, just you know it's always incredible to listen to you because like as you were getting really passionate about this i was like yeah i don't know why i'm sitting in this chair i should be getting <laughs> what i can do so yeah, thank you so much for chatting with us today and you know taking so much time out of your day even though we know it's packed with everything so <laughs> we really appreciate it hasani thank you Thank you so much for having me. It was a it was a pleasure, and you folks are are too kind. And um, I just like to emphasize that this is um, I might be speaking right now on behalf of Black Lives Matter, but this is community um, effort, and and um, it wouldn't be possible with the the countless amount of um, allies and folks who you know offer their skills and and services and. Um, their voice when 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 needed and you know that's 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 why we're we're still 
keeping the, the, the pressure going. But thank you so much for, for having me. It was a good chat. <laughs> awesome. But we're not done yet. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay. <laughs> I was like, that's a little quick. <laughs> <laughs> we still have one segment left, and that's okay. our MRM segment, Ooh. which is movie, restaurant, and music. So typically our guests and we share recommendations, be it for music, be it for movies, or for a restaurant that you really like. So is there anything you'd like to chat with us about today? Hmm. Um, you know what? I won't recommend a restaurant because there's so much like COVID restrictions and there are so many new cases here um, that are under investigation. So I'm not recommending on my own because uh, I work from home now. So I got to put on, turn the club up uh, by myself. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no Beyonce in there at all, eh? Um, I do go throw back to, to Beyonce's formation. I love that, yes. that song. Um, it's just like, it's so empowering and especially for, you know, black folks. I know like she's a black woman, but even me, I'm just jamming, um, to it when she, just so many aspects of it that, you know, she talks about um, empowering yourself, you know, let's get info. I think, I think it's so poetic too. It's like, let's get information, but it's also, you know, let's get information, you know, strategize, but it's also information mm -hmm. getting, you know, knowledge, knowledge, and, and that's empowerment in and of itself. So I really like that, but I, yeah, I like um, what I've been listening to is a lot of uh, black female artists, you know, Megan Thee Stallion, mm -hmm. um, Flo Millie, um, you know, all of, you know, Cardi B. Mm -hmm. That's, that's my jam. It's just like empowering and reclaiming, you know, reclaiming whatever words they want and their sexuality and, um, you know, being unapologetic about who they are and what they want. And, you know, I feel like a lot of times women are kind of, you know, expected to be, um, you know, these, these holy people who don't have any desires outside of, um, you know, I don't want to say anything that I'm not supposed to say, but you know what I'm <laughs> saying, you know, um, but these women, they just like embrace, you know, sexual, their sexuality and um, embrace being like, a boss and I'm just like yes you know do that and, <laughs> and that kind of empowers me I'm just like yeah like do you you know claim yourself you know and do whatever you want you know so I'd recommend um anything from Beyonce um Cardi B's new WAP yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that song um Flo Millie she has so so many good ones um Megan the Stallion, Girls in the Hood, uh, which uh, uh, um, kind of a remix of Boys in the Hood. So I, I like that one too. Mm. And just to jump off that, I know when Girls in the Hood came out and I saw like the pink cover of it and, and it's her and it's such a classic beat, right? Like everyone knows yeah. the go to that song, but 
you know, I've read a couple articles since then. And, and again, I didn't really know the history of the song, you know, as it had come out years ago, um, the original version, but the reclaiming of a song that historically had been very violent towards women, mm. had been very, um, you know, sexualizing, but as well, just kind of ownership in general. Um, there, there's a number of different lines that are like super inappropriate. So for her <laughs> as a new young black woman on the scene to recover claim that song and, and to have ownership on it and the empowerment I think is so important which is why it's oh it's such a good song it's no so yeah good. I love all of those I, I love it it's just it's empowering for everyone when you you know just just listening to it and where the song you know boys in the hood comes from and then you know someone just taking ownership of that and mm -hmm. and turning it around and like also you know expressing that confidence and dominance over over it, you know. So it was, yeah. I'm inspired by by all those people um, that defy uh, stereotypes and defy societal norms. You know, society tries to put us in boxes. So I'm always like empowered by people who goes outside of the 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 box that society puts them in. No matter the the repercussions that the backlash that they, um, as long as you're not harming anyone, you know. But you know, no matter the backlash, it's just like, you know, if that person can can be themselves and go outside the box, like what's holding me back from you know, saying what I want and yeah. reclaiming whatever I want to reclaim, you know. Mm -hmm. How about you, folks? Mm -hmm. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go? You go. Sure, I can go first. Um, so I'll do the restaurant recommendation. And these past few weeks, what I really enjoyed is going back to the farmer's market. Of course, mm. there's plexiglass everywhere now, limited number of people, mandatory masks, social distancing. So all the measures are in place. But somewhere I've really liked the food from is out of Africa catering. Mm. And they have excellent samosas, really great dishes. And the portion sizes are huge for the oh. amount that you're paying. So I always know if I get lunch from there, I'm going to have enough for supper as well. So that's one less meal I have to prep. So mm. and pay for. Mm. So <laughs> out of Africa catering at the Charlottetown uh, farmer's market. It's delicious. And the people working there are really nice as well. So that's my recommendation, which leaves Emma for the movie. She knew what I was going to share. She set me up for it. We didn't, you know, we're not this good on the fly. Um, one movie that I want to share in, in definitely celebrating Black content and Black ownership uh, was a film I saw, I think, this time last year, came out late 2019. It's called Queen and Slim. Uh, Hisoni, I don't know if you've seen it already. I know Sweta was dying to see it recently, but I saw it on the last day that it was at um, an independent movie theater that I'm a member of, uh, City Cinema. So I'll have a plug in there. They're great. Um, but uh, for listeners, for folks, this was with Daniel Kaluuya, who many folks know from Get Out, um, but with also uh, Jodie Turner-Smith, uh, and as well was directed by, in one of her first directorship roles, uh, Melina Metsukas, who was also involved in the, um, the videography of the Formation album, actually with Beyonce. Um, oh. So there's a connection there and um, uh, just the visualization of this story of um, what uh, Daniel Kaluuya's and, and Joni Turner Smith's characters refer to themselves as the Black Bonnie and Clyde and experiencing police brutality in the United States and um, 
taking kind of this, you know, historical look at, um, you know, Bonnie and Clyde as this, you know, white pair that were, you know, on the run, like this sort of thing, but actually turning the table and looking at what are these real oppressive experiences of black people when it comes to uh, police. And, and I don't want to ruin the story, but I'm pretty sure I cried the entire time. Oh, I just shriveled up in my seat <laughs> like this. And I was just like, anyways, I was holding my partner's hand, just crying. It was so like both, like, I think from a, a story perspective, it, it's a beautiful story. It's extremely sad um, because again, it, it tells it from a real um, experience of black people but as well the visuals kind of similar to formation the different lighting the different colors the different um, angles just it, everything the movements of people as well like in different types of shots like anyways I, I could go on about it forever but it was a really good film and if you haven't seen it or for listeners who haven't seen it mm -hmm. please check it out I don't know what platforms it's on um, the interweb i don't know yeah <laughs> i'll definitely give that a watch that sounds like an amazing uh movie i'm always into watching uh new black uh films because mm -hmm. it's so new right it's just that it's this this representation in in movies is um is a new thing so i'm always excited to to see something new exciting over the past few months has been Netflix expanding the amount of content that it has you know that was made by black people for instance I remember watching sister sister as a child and then it was recently put on Netflix and I, was <laughs> I like, know oh my gosh I've been I've been binging that too I love that <laughs> me too sister sister I can't say <laughs> but <laughs> well Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just, I was going to pick fun on Sweta. She recently did a, um, a quiz today that like was one of those Instagram things where it's like, what profession will you have? And it came up as singer. And oh. so, um, maybe, See, do you want to sing, sing us the theme? Yeah, the, the, the theme. So here's the thing, right? <laughs> I used to think I could sing well. And then one day I made the mistake of recording myself. <laughs> <laughs> I what I was subjecting subjecting other people to, so I will spare you today. Yeah. Uh, but this brings us to a wrap on our episode. So thank you so much for joining us again, Hassani. I don't know if you have any closing words for us. No, thank you so much for for having me, and hopefully we can have some karaoke uh, soon. So country <laughs> roads, like good old days, and um, it would be a good time. Yep, we're just on the other side of the bridge if you ever want i know i know <laughs> yes and please do hasoni for real like well we don't we could go back to lakeside if the weather is good enough and who knows what this climate change thing like i know this could be on the beach um so uh no you're always welcome here with either sweater and i i'm gonna invite you on behalf of sweater to her house yeah <laughs> my house. Um, so yes I'm sure you don't mind. Sure. <laughs> yeah. She just volunteered you. <laughs> but if Sweta says no, I actually, well, actually at that conference you were speaking about, I, um, I provided accommodations in my living room floor and couch uh, because I live in a very small apartment uh, to your counterparts at UMB St. John's. So oh, folks, no folks are always welcome. Always yes. welcome. <laughs> yep. Got to do what you got to do to support people. Yeah, right? yeah, no, that that was an amazing conference, and I definitely have uh, PEI on my my list of places to visit in the in the near future, especially in the Atlantic bubble. So yes, absolutely. 
You'll see me soon. Good, good. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you right. so much for chatting with us, Asani. Enjoy the rest of your week. Same to you. Take care, folks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And that's all the time that we have today, folks. Thank you so much again for being with us, Hassani. And just as an update for you folks, since we have last talked to Hassoni, Megan the Stallion, who of course Hassoni had mentioned as one of his uh, musical artists for the MRM segment, has released Good News, her debut album. We've since followed up with Hassoni and he gives Megan the Stallion his stamp of approval. So congratulations, Megan, on the stamp of approval and a great album. Absolutely. If you're looking for things to do in the month of December, furthermore, We'd like to recommend It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, which will be playing at the Confederation Center of the Arts from December 3rd to December 5th. This is a story about a 1940s radio stage where someone learns the value of friendship on Christmas Eve. It's an adaptation of a classic movie and is sure to bring some holiday cheer to everyone. Tickets are available online at the Confederation Center website and our good friend uh, Mike Mullally is in this play as well. Another show that we like to highlight, and we spoke about this in other episodes, is Shane Pendergast's show at Trailside Music Hall. Once again, that's coming up December 21st. That's at 8 p.m. Uh, tickets can be found on Trailside Music, or sorry, trailside.ca. And those are $25 to see Shane and his crew at the Trailside Music Hall. So once again, our music is from the talented Shane Pettergast. Thanks you folks so much for listening. This was Dialogue. Crazy.